everybody. It is Friday, January 12th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwinunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, January 12th, the internet tells me, is National Hot Tea Day. And I want to honor tea this week. Tea has been key to bring my voice back. On the scale of one to 10, I think you're now at about an eight. Oh, from seven and a half to eight in 24 hours? I was actually hoping I'd be closer to nine, but Jill, you're you're a hard judge. We just have to be able to strive for something, right? If I gave you a nine, you'd stop with the T for the There's weekend. There's no great inflation here on the pod. <laughs> um, apparently, the National Tea Council made this a holiday several years ago. So for those of you who don't drink coffee or looking for a coffee break, I'm a big tea fan. I like a mint tea. Jill, what's your favorite? I'm a big ginger tea fan. Oh, I love a good yeah. ginger tea. But I'm not going to lie. I am a coffee gal. Joe, we grew up uh, growing mint in our backyard. My dad's from Morocco originally, and mint tea is a big deal. And the way uh, they do their tea there, they literally just put the uh, tea leaves, the mint, into a pot of boiling water. Uh, and that's how you make that delicious uh, Moroccan mint tea. So that was a, a daily, if not twice a day, deal in our household growing up. That sounds lovely. Uh, Before we get to the rest of the news, I do want to quickly mention some housekeeping here. Are we done talking about tea? We're done talking about tea. I guess so. I guess I put a pin on the tea. (laughs) You're like, most. do you want people to listen to this podcast? Are we done? Are we done here? (laughs) I I found the Morocco anecdote interesting. Your voice is getting back. I think we can move on. We have things to get to. I got you. (laughs) <laughs> I did. <laughs> Bush, Bush was about to go into the, into the history of tea in China five I, centuries ago. I, I felt we were going in that direction, so I just <laughs> wanted to like <laughs> put a pin in it and allow us to just get to the news. No. Did you do you know the origins of tea? <laughs> I felt like that's oh, where boy. we were going. <laughs> On the stay in history. Yes. Um, Anyway, Monday is MLK Day. We would normally take off because it's a federal holiday, but it is also the Iowa caucus. So we will have a podcast uh, on Monday. That's right, folks. Stay tuned for uh, an exciting way to start your week or end your holiday weekend. All right. Now to the headlines. South Africa telling the U.N.'s top court that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza as this landmark case begins. Today is day two and Israel will get a chance to defend itself. The U.S. strikes back at Houthi militants who have been targeting commercial ships in the Red Sea for months. Most remember that ultimatum the U.S. was giving to the Houthis? Well, apparently that one more time was uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, a long-awaited move here by the U.S. and the coalition. Voting season is about to officially get underway, and a new poll is out just days ahead of Monday's Iowa caucus. The FAA is now investigating whether Boeing's 737 MAX 9, which was involved in the Alaska air blowout, conformed to approved design. Winter came in like a lamb, but now it is roaring to life. The polar weather that is going to be hitting much of the country as soon as tonight. Hope you don't have flight plans through Chicago today. It could be rough, folks. Another legendary coach is leaving his job. Bill Belichick saying goodbye to the Patriots after 24 seasons and a record six titles. And a blast from the past, Fruit Stripe Gum is going to be discontinued. 
And it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for what we are watching, reading, and eating. Get excited for Mean Girls this weekend, folks. Stop trying to make fetch happen. (laughs) We will try again in this podcast. Okay, let's start with some breaking news from Thursday night. A major escalation in the Middle East. The U.S., U.K., and other allies carried out military strikes against more than a dozen targets in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. The coalition strikes early Friday morning local time were aimed at radar systems and drone and missile sites, a U.S. submarine, several destroyers and fighter jets, and part of the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower aircraft carrier strike group took part. President Biden said that the strikes were supported by Australia, Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands, and that they targeted areas used by Houthi rebels to, quote, endanger freedom of navigation in one of the world's most vital waterways. It was a response to nearly 30 drone and missile strikes from Houthi terrorists in recent weeks. They were directed at commercial ships in the Red Sea. And as we've been talking about on this podcast, it has forced shipping companies to find different and more expensive routes to deliver goods. Yeah, this was having a real global impact, still is, Jill, and we'll see how this all unfolds. Explosions were heard and seen in the capital of Sana'a, Yemen, overnight, as well as across the country, as the coalition was targeting uh, Houthi-controlled sites, uh, including weapons depots. This is sort of the definition of mess around and find out. Earlier this week, the Biden administration said to the Houthis, stop, cease the attacks, or suffer the consequences. The UK defense minister, as we told you on this podcast, said, watch this space as far as response here. Well, the Houthis decided to mess around again on Tuesday, launching one of their biggest barrages of drones and missile strikes on shipping, which officials tell the New York Times was the last straw for the US and the UK. Remember, the Houthis here are a proxy group. They are controlled, armed, funded by Iran. Basically, Iran here has been giving them orders. The Houthis did say originally in October that they were doing this to shippers related to Israel in solidarity with Hamas. Remember, the motto of the Houthi rebel group, which controls Yemen right now, is death to America, death to Israel, curse on the Jews, victory to Islam. Uh, But this went beyond um, Israel and even the U.S. The Houthis are attacking ships left and right without rhyme or reason in recent weeks. It's really created chaos across the region, forcing shippers to avoid the Suez Canal, avoid the Red Sea. Uh, you know, a good percentage of shipping goes through uh, that area because it's much quicker to go through the Mediterranean and through the Red Sea than all the way around Africa. Well, most shippers now have to do this. This is increased delays, supply chain issues, and costs. If you look at the charges for transporting a 40-foot container right now from China to Europe, it's up 400% from about $1,000 to $4,000 in just the last six weeks. Well, that has a real impact economically. And ultimately, a whole bunch of shippers are like, we're not even trying the Red Sea, even though the U.S. and others were promising they would ensure safe passage. And so the only reason this has taken so long is the U.S. has been trying to avoid a war with Iran here. The Houthis in Iran, though, are testing uh, patients, uh, poking the U.S. on a nearly daily basis, more than 100 attacks on land in Iraq, in Syria, on the water in the past three months as the U.S. feels obligated here to show some force and tell the Iranians and the Houthis to cut it out. So it is unclear how much damage they did to the Houthis here. The Houthis have condemned the attacks. They called it aggression. They're vowing to respond. Uh, It will be interesting to see, Jill, Iran's next move. They made a point, according to the Wall Street Journal, of moving out one of their spy ships, which was in the Red Sea. Uh, They believe that the U.S. would target it. So the Iranians are like, "Mm, let's move it out of the Red Sea and move it closer back to Iran. 
So does that mean that the Iranians are not feeling as aggressive here? They basically were like, okay, we did what we did. Or will things ratchet up? And that's something we'll have to watch very closely this weekend. The consensus, at least amongst uh, military analysts on Thursday night, has been, you know, what has taken the U.S. so long? Finally, finally, they are responding to, to this. And, and perhaps they have, should have done it a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, this this went on for a while. Keep in mind, the Houthis were actually able to successfully take over a ship called the Galaxy Leader. They're holding 20 sailors hostage uh, for now more than two months um, in Yemen, trying to get money out of a Japanese shipping company to get these uh, guys freed. So uh, they really have done uh, damage to international shipping here, the global economy. And so the U.S., which has a couple aircraft carrier groups in the region, uh, striking back. And again, they're just they're reluctant to lead to a regional war here. So the, the Biden administration has avoided this until now. All right. Now to hearings at the International Court of Justice or ICJ over the Israel war with Hamas. The ICJ at The Hague in the Netherlands is the highest U.N. legal body that can rule on issues between member states. South Africa has accused Israel of carrying out genocide against Palestinian civilians in Gaza and is demanding that the court order an emergency ceasefire of Israel's military campaign. In day one of the hearing, South Africa made its case in a little bit over three hours of arguments. They said Israel's three-month offensive is aimed to bring, quote, the destruction of the population of Gaza and they say Israel is intentionally murdering civilians. As part of their argument, South Africa is focusing on the devastation to civilian infrastructure, the limits that Israel has placed on aid into Gaza, as well as statements by some of Israel's leaders throughout the war, including the Israeli prime minister and defense minister, as well as some of the right wing members of the Knesset who have said things like there are no innocent people in Gaza. The Hamas run health ministry has said Israel has killed more than 23,000 people in Gaza, many of which are women and children. Today, though, is Israel's turn to make its argument before the court. Yeah, you noted there, Jill, that the South Africans are focusing, among other things, on statements by Israeli leaders a key focus, if you're trying to make the case for genocide, is to focus on intent. Now, some of these statements were made by people who don't have any role in the war, uh, just you know, extremist politicians. At the same time, there are statements by the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who at one point called Hamas human animals. Uh, South Africa implied that he was talking about all Palestinians there. He has said otherwise. Uh, they also argued that Netanyahu, in a speech before troops, uh, compared Gaza to Amalek, Amalek being the uh, tribe in the Bible that was the enemy of the ancient Israelites uh, in the Bible, God commands the Israelis to wipe out Amalek. So there the South Africans are trying to say that by invoking that, uh, Netanyahu was implying genocide. Now the Israelis are arguing here, and we'll get more of them today, that they've been trying to avoid civilian casualties, that this war is a war with Hamas, that the civilians who have been killed are collateral damage, right? They live in civilian infrastructure that the Israelis say is used by Hamas. So the Israelis have said they have no intent to murder civilians in mass, uh, but ultimately the deaths here are just part of war. The Israelis have already said they believe this is one of the greatest shows of hypocrisy in history, this trial. The foreign ministry putting out a statement yesterday ahead of making their arguments that South Africa has utterly distorted the reality in Gaza following the October 7th massacre, ignoring the fact that it was Hamas infiltrated Israel, murdered, executed, massacred, raped, and abducted Israeli citizens in their attempt to carry out genocide on Israel. 
They also point out that South African attorneys are ignoring in their arguments how Hamas uses the civilian population in Gaza as human shields. They believe that is very important context. You can imagine you'll be hearing a lot of that in court today. The fact that Hamas does use apartment buildings, mosques, schools, UN refugee camps to launch attacks on Israel. The Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel also put out a video statement ahead of this trial this week saying that Israel specifically fighting Hamas here has no intent to permanently occupy Gaza or permanently displace the population. The Israelis are aggressive here in their rhetoric, saying that South Africa is functioning as a legal arm of Hamas here. Uh, And they're going to say that Israel has a right to self-defense like any other country. At the same time, the South Africans made the argument that Israel has been too aggressive in this war, uh, hence their belief that this war, that Israel's conduct in this war specifically, meets what they believe is the definition of genocide. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, he has pretty much dismissed the case, saying, quote, it is particularly galling, given that those who are attacking Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis, as well as their supporter Iran, continue to call for the annihilation of Israel and the mass murder of Jews. It is something echoed as well by Israel's president, Isaac Herzog. So what happens next year? This court, the ICJ, has 15 judges. They are appointed for nine-year terms. They are voted on the court by the UN General Assembly and the Security Council. And then there are these two ad hoc judges, one from Israel and one from South Africa. But it could take literally years for a decision to be made. Yeah, so it's a 17-judge panel here Uh, And the judges include judges from the U.S., Australia, but also from China, Russia, Somalia, Morocco, Lebanon, notably a number of countries there that are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, which the Israelis have made note of. And then you have the U.S., U.K., Australia, et cetera, on the other side. Uh, So we'll see what comes of this. These judges serve nine-year terms. So depending on how long this takes, uh, some of these judges could be gone as soon as next month. They're finishing. uh, A few of them are leaving on their nine-year terms. And if this takes a few years... The judges who hear this case today uh, might not be the ultimate uh, group that has a ruling on this. Given how long this will take, what the South Africans are looking for here is a provisional ruling. Basically, they're hoping that the court will rule that there should be an immediate ceasefire here. They're arguing that the devastation in northern Gaza, uh, the devastation to civilian infrastructure, etc. Again, they believe that is their definition of uh, genocide here, and they want the court to act quickly. Now, keep in mind, there is no enforcement mechanism for the International Court of Justice. They can rule whatever, and it's up to the countries to abide by this. Now, keep in mind, Hamas doesn't have to abide by the ICJ. They're a terror group. They're not privy to the ICJ or any of these agreements, Uh, but Israel is. One of the issues that the court's going to face here is that the legal question about genocide is murky. Genocide is not very specifically defined, uh, nor is its scope. Now, they, it got this very general legal description in 1948 out of World War II and the Holocaust, genocide being an act committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. Historically, this has been hard to prove because, again, the definition is vague here. There's no clear threshold on determining what is war and civilian casualties versus genocide specifically or the threshold for proving intent, nor a general sense of what the scope has to be to be genocide. Does there have to be a certain number of people killed for it to be defined as a genocide versus just war? In fact, the Israelis have argued here, but this case is not before the court, that Hamas which in its charter says that all Jews should be killed, 
was in fact committing genocide themselves when it committed the terror attack on October 7th. Now, again, Hamas not on trial here. South Africa brought the case against Israel. uh, And again, Hamas not uh, bound by international law or ICJ rulings. And so that'll be the deal here. South Africa, by the way, is backed up by the support of uh, dozens of countries, including all of the 50 plus Islamic and Arab countries as well. And then you have the Israelis here uh, who are backed up by the Americans, uh, UK, and a number of European countries who don't believe what we've seen over the course of the past three months meets the definition of genocide. Most like all things related to this conflict, um, to Israel and Palestine, tons of emotion here. But I thought the analysis that you posted on Instagram from The Economist was pretty interesting, which argued that South Africa seems to be embracing the Palestinian cause For one reason, as a distraction from its own domestic problems, the South African president's approval ratings are way down. The economy is stalled. There have been these rolling blackouts. So analysts say that this war between Israel and Hamas comes at an opportune time. They also point out that it is ironic that a week before South Africa took Israel to court, accusing it of genocide, South Africa hosted Mohammed Hamdan Dagola, a Sudanese warlord whose Janjaweed militia and its successor are actually accused of genocide and war crimes in Darfur. Yeah, the Janjaweed accused of killing more than half a million people, raping millions of women in Darfur. So the accusation here is the South Africans are engaged in a bit of hypocrisy here. Uh, Also, they've embraced Hamas in recent years. Uh, Hamas leader actually marched with Mandela's grandson recently. Uh, In a commemoration uh, this fall, the foreign minister of South Africa held a call with Hamas leader Ismail Haniya, recently also visited Iran uh, and met with the Iranian leader. So uh, this does come as good politics for the uh, South African president. The ANC is dipping in popularity at the lowest level in decades right now as they're dealing with a lot of issues in the country. So they decided uh, to use this cause to boost their polling. And in fact, it looks like it's worked in the past couple of months in South Africa. But at the same time, Jill, uh, Israeli analysts say that, you know, arguments aside, this shows an Israeli diplomatic failure of the past three months, post-October 7th, uh, that has gotten to the point where this is being heard at The Hague. Uh, It's an indictment of the Netanyahu government and their relationships or lack thereof with certain governments around the world. And that even though a ruling here will not be binding, uh, any ruling that asserts Uh, that genocide is being committed here, especially based on some of the rhetoric they've seen, if not the actions, uh, will not be great for Israel's image abroad and its relationships with certain countries. Keep in mind, Joel, as part of the arguments here, uh, notably, South Africans are also using TikTok videos made by individual soldiers who are part of that campaign in Gaza. So they're trying to make a case here based on rhetoric and individual examples uh, that genocide is happening, even if the, the numbers don't pan out with, you know, sort of historic genocides when we're talking about Rwanda, the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust, etc. All right. Now moving on to some American politics. There is now one weekend of campaigning left before the Iowa caucus. Yesterday, we reported on Chris Christie dropping out of the race. And now we've got some new poll numbers without Christie uh, in the race in Iowa. So Trump is at 54 percent, Haley at 22 percent, DeSantis at 13 And Ramaswamy, remember him, he is at 6%. But what about Asa Hutchinson, Jill? (laughs) When Christie was in the race, he had about 2% of the vote. And it looks like Haley did pick up those two percentage points. But still, she is um, trailing Trump by more than 30 points. Yeah, notable here. 
that 50% figure. Trump has more than 50% of Iowa Republicans in the latest poll with three days to go until the caucuses. And the headline for me coming out of that poll is lights out DeSantis. He can't afford a third place finish in the state if this poll holds up. He put it all out there on the field, literally visiting all 99 counties in Iowa. He saw this as his opportunity to make a point that he's the true conservative here. He's the next generation Trump. Uh, That was his big bet here. And he spent a lot of money, 60 million plus dollars, uh, trying to make that case. And so if he actually ends up uh, in third place here, it's sort of over for Ron. Uh, But we'll see what happens. There's still a certain percentage of voters in Iowa who are undecided. Also keep in mind, it's going to be like negative 20, negative 30 wind chill on Monday. So we'll see who actually turns out versus people who are taking a poll from the warmth of their homes. Who's the most passionate to get out there, regardless of how cold things are, even by Iowa standards? Now, uh, Haley's second place finish does give her a little bit of momentum going into New Hampshire. That's where she's really competitive with Trump. Uh, they vote eight days after Iowa on January 23rd. And if she can pull off a win in New Hampshire and get a bit closer to Trump in Iowa, she has a bit of a story to tell there to Republican voters as the alternative to Trump. Now, a reminder that Iowa is not a great predictor here, but it does show you where the base of the Republican Party is. Trump has gained traction, not lost traction. Despite the indictments, I would say even because of the indictments, he's gained traction in the last six months as people rallied around him. Among the arguments that Sanders and Haley have made is that, you know, we love Trump. Everyone loves Trump, but he can't win in a general. America doesn't love him anymore. Well, in recent weeks, we now see polls showing him beating Biden in swing states. So that argument has been thrown out the window here. So I Republicans are like, well, why should I vote for the the new thing if the old thing is still winning? Why should I try Coke too, DeSantis, when I like the original Coke? And so that has made things particularly difficult for DeSantis because uh, on policy issues, he's very close to Trump. So the race we thought we would have, Ron versus Don, it appears it'll be Nikki versus Don. The big question I think a lot of us are asking, though, is uh, where does Nikki go uh, versus Don? We know Don has the base of the party and uh, continues to remain popular. If she can pull off second place in Iowa, okay. She can win in New Hampshire. Great. South Carolina, her home state. She's getting crushed by Trump there. It's really Trump territory, despite the fact that she's from there. Where does she go from there? What is the case that she can make to win for a long haul fight against uh, Trump here? And so that'll be one of the questions political analysts will be asking. In the meantime, though, it'll be really interesting to see for the first time how accurate these polls are in Iowa. That'll give us a sense of where polling is also uh, after we've had some questions about it in recent elections. And Moshe, I do want to quickly mention that on Wednesday, right after Christie had dropped out of the race, there was kind of this split screen because you had a CNN-Iowa debate between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. It was their first and only kind of one-on-one debate. They spent two hours launching their harshest attacks at each other and not really at Donald Trump, which was kind of Chris Christie's point uh, when when he dropped out. Trump skipped the debate per usual, and he went on Fox for a town hall. And to your point, he really seemed to already be setting his sights on the general election battle against Joe Biden. Yeah, he's like, I've already killed Ron DeSantis. I'm going to, you know, kill Nikki Haley. Uh, not literally. That's a whole separate conversation because his <laughs> lawyers in court this week were actually arguing that as president, he has immunity from even killing people, which I got into on the Instagram account. If you want to read up on, on that argument, 
separately. He, you know, basically he's beat them. You know, he never took them seriously. His strategy of ignoring them uh, for the most part and skipping the debates appears to have worked so far, though, again, it's still early. And so uh, he's focused on Biden here. He's feeling good. You could sense his confidence on Wednesday night. And it comes as he's taking Iowa very seriously this time around, much more than 2016. We had no organization at all. He knows the state now. He's got county captains, et cetera. So we'll see how that impacts the numbers on Monday. All right. If you're a longtime listener, you know that both Jill and I have been drinking AG1 as part of our daily nutritional supplement now for more than a year. Especially as a new dad, I can use all the help I can get. AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. You get more than 70 vital vitamins, probiotics, prebiotics, and minerals uh, that you need. It's just a scoop of powder uh, with a glass of water in the morning. And then you've gotten everything you need to go about your day. AG1 has been around for more than a decade now. They continually refine their formula to make sure they have a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. And they've been a longtime partner here at Mo News, uh, providing a special deal for all of you and the Mo News community. If you want to take ownership of your health today, it starts with AG1. With the Mo News code, you get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, as well as five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can head over to drinkag1.com. That is drinkag, the number one, dot com slash Mo News. Again, the special deal right now, a free one-year supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs. Head over to drinkag1.com slash Mo News to check it out. All right, time now for the speed read from the New York Times. The Federal Aviation Administration on Thursday said that it had opened an investigation into whether Boeing failed to ensure that its 737 MAX 9 plane was safe and manufactured to match the design that was approved by the agency. The FAA said the investigation stemmed from that loss of a fuselage panel of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 operated by Alaska Airlines shortly after it took off on Friday, leaving a hole in the side of the passenger cabin. The plane, as we know, returned to Portland for an emergency landing. The agency said this incident should never have happened and it cannot happen again. In a letter to Boeing dated January 10th, the FAA said that after the Portland incident, it was notified of additional issues with other Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. The letter didn't detail what the other issues were, but we do know Alaska and United, which operate most of the MAX 9s that are in use in the United States, they said on Monday that they had discovered loose hardware on the panel when conducting preliminary inspections on their planes. This new investigation is the latest setback for Boeing, which is one of just two suppliers of large planes for most airlines and the only one in the United States. Um, Airbus, of course, is is over in Europe. Yeah, you got Embraer, you got Airbus, and you got Boeing. There's a lot of consolidation through the decades. And what that has meant is that there's a lack of options here. And in some cases, people have argued that it also changed the culture at Boeing, the merger with McDonnell Douglas years ago. The challenge for Boeing here, Jill, which we should note, they once had the motto, if it ain't Boeing, we're not going, uh, which sort of is the reverse in recent years uh, based on some of the issues, is that this is not the first issue they faced, right? Especially with the Max plane. We've talked about it on the podcast. There were those uh, two crashes related to the 737 MAX 8 in Indonesia and Ethiopia in recent years that led to a two-year grounding of those planes until they could figure out the software glitch. This issue appears to be separate 
the National Transportation Safety Board here in the U.S. is investigating why the 737 MAX 9 panel, known as the door plug, this was sort of a, a fill-in door that is sometimes an emergency door, but in the case of this plane, was a door plug, flew off the Boeing jet. Whether bolts were there incorrectly, were not there at all. Uh, installation instructions, uh, are they properly being done um, at Boeing? The luck here is that no one was seriously hurt in the incident, but it happened at 16,000 feet. If it was at a higher altitude, when they turned off the seatbelt sign, the consequences here could have been very severe as people literally could have been sucked out of the plane. Also lucky here, this row, uh, the two seats closest to the door plug were not full as this incident happened. So there's the Boeing issue here, but also expect to hear more about Spirit in the coming weeks. I'm not talking about the airline. I'm talking about the manufacturer. It's Spirit Aerosystems, not Spirit Airlines. They're not related. Spirit Aerosystems is the manufacturer of the door plug. They said on Wednesday they're supporting the investigation here. But some new court documents reveal that investors in Spirit Aerosystems have long had issues with the quality of its products. The company was subject to a federal class action lawsuit filed in New York in May, alleging a history of, quote, constant quality failures. Spirit Aerosystems is one of the main suppliers to Boeing. And one of its primary roles is in manufacturing the majority of fuselages for what else? The Boeing 737 aircraft. So uh, there's going to be an investigation of Boeing here. Expect to hear more about Spirit Aerosystems as they get to the bottom of this. So far, Jill, United and Alaska have canceled flights that were supposed to happen on their 737 MAX 9s uh, into early next week. But I wouldn't hold out hope that those plans are taking off anytime soon as this investigation continues. From Fox Weather, winter weather alerts are in effect from the plains to the Midwest ahead of another major winter storm, which could blast cities like Chicago and Milwaukee with heavy snow and strong winds. The storm system will move into the Chicago and Milwaukee areas today and could produce snowfall rates exceeding one inch per hour and wind gusts over 40 miles per hour. Significant flight delays and cancellations are anticipated at airports like O'Hare and around Wisconsin and Iowa. Many cities in Wisconsin could see snowfall totals higher than a foot, and some could approach nearly two feet of snow. Yeah, basically, if you live north of I-80, which goes across sort of central Illinois there um, through the Midwest, watch out today. But wait, as they say in the infomercials, there's more. (laughs) After this storm, temperatures will plunge across the western U.S., the Midwest, the Upper Plains. You could be seeing between 20 to 30 degrees below zero as soon as tonight, early tomorrow morning. You're probably already waking up to that in Montana and Wyoming. The Northern Plains, Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, Illinois, Missouri, you will be seeing that. uh, It could be negative 10, negative 15 where you are Seven states are already under a wind chill warning uh, through the start of the new week next week. Some wind chills, by the way, at night could see 65 degrees below zero. And this has really been a winter of whiplash so far. Uh, as you were noting in the headlines, Jilla got off like a lamb, not much snowfall, unseasonably warm temperatures, and that has reversed itself. Just last week, only 20% of the country was covered in snow. This week, it's more than doubled, 45% of the country now has uh, some semblance of snow. Uh, And as far as that polar plunge across the middle of the country, you probably are not going to see warmer temps in places like Minneapolis, Kansas City, Little Rock, Nashville, uh, Chicago until Thursday into Friday. Okay, from the New York Times, remember when we told you Monday that there was an apparent deal to avert a government shutdown? Well, as we say in Brooklyn, 
Forget about it. Speaker Mike Johnson (laughs) coming under mounting pressure from House GOP hardliners to renege on the spending deal that he had struck with Democrats over the weekend for avoiding the government shutdown. Ultra conservatives demanding that he put forward a new plan with deeper budget cuts after meeting privately in his office in the Capitol with Republicans irate about the spending agreement. Johnson said that he was discussing their demand to walk away from that bipartisan agreement. Far right Republicans made it clear that they considered the deal that the speaker negotiated to be a non-starter and threatened to wreak havoc in the House if he did not advance a different one. They are pressing for deep spending cuts, and many have said that they cannot vote for any government funding measure that fails to include a severe crackdown on immigration. And right about now, uh, Johnson is wondering why he decided to run for speaker. Yeah, now he's like, well, I understand what Kevin McCarthy went through, because this is basically what Kevin McCarthy went through that led him to lose his job. Every time they try to make a deal, this far right group is like, no, 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 you can cut more. And we actually don't care if you shut down the government. We don't care about the electoral ramifications. We came to do one thing, and it's cut spending. Now, notably, this deal that Johnson shook on with Schumer, who leads the Democrats in the Senate, where they have the majority, keeps funding levels at last year's level, as opposed to increasing them. This was the deal Democrats, Biden, Republicans struck last spring. It's a deal McCarthy tried to follow through on. And uh, far-right Republicans are like, nope, we don't like this deal. And we're going to help you uh, get it across the finish line because now Johnson has about a two-seat majority. He can only lose two votes in the House. And this group is at about a dozen-plus Republicans. So he now faces the same issue McCarthy faced. Johnson's only three months into his speakership. He has to go back to Schumer being like, I know we have a deal, but like I got a problem. Well, Democrats say, tough. We're going to proceed with this deal. We made a deal here. Uh, and we, if not, we'll do a continuing resolution, which is the congressional term for let's keep funding levels where they are while we try to figure this out. The issue for Republicans, the far right Republicans won't even want to do a continuing resolution. They're like, no, no, no. We want what we want and we want it now. And we don't care if you keep the government open. By the way, when you talk about government shutdown, I've gotten notes from all of you. We're talking about, you know, uh, majority of government workers furloughed. That means the IRS ain't doing their job. It means the national parks are closed. It means the museums are closed. It means federal museums are closed. It means a lot of the work of the government is not getting done, you know, passport renewals, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, has an impact on our military and defense establishment in uh, non-urgent roles. So that's where things stand. And we'll tell you more about it next week as we listen to the latest episode of As Congress Turns. (laughs) From ESPN, Bill Belichick, the New England Patriots coach, leaving the team after 24 seasons and a record six Super Bowl titles. He said Thursday, quote, we're going to move on while also looking back fondly at his unmatched run in NFL history that, again, included those six Super Bowl wins. During a news conference on Thursday, the Patriots owner, Robert Kraft, called Belichick the greatest coach of all time who deserved to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Belichick, not known to show emotion, but he did get a bit choked up looking back at his time with the team. Take a listen. And finally, to the fans. Um, you know, the fans here are amazing. Um, you know, there's so many memories of the fans, the, the send-offs, um, the parades, um, the Sundays, you know, whatever the, whatever the situations are, um, the letters of support. 
Okay, so Belichick had one year remaining on his contract, and he will be allowed to leave the team without the Patriots seeking compensation. Apparently, uh, this was all amicable. Yeah, and Belichick wants to continue coaching. There's an opening in Atlanta, so he might go to the Falcons. We'll see what happens there. Uh, Kraft said he didn't want to trade Belichick. Uh, he wanted to respectfully you know, let him do his own thing, similar to what he did with uh, Tom Brady, who was Belichick's quarterback for years. Jill, notably, you know, Belichick took the team to all these championships. It was while Brady was QB. He's had a couple of really tough seasons in New England and hasn't won a playoff game since Brady uh, went to the Tampa Bay Bucks and then, of course, subsequently retired as well. So now the Patriots will uh, be looking at uh, a new coach. Uh, some are saying it might be the linebackers coach, Jared Mayo. We'll see what happens there. And, of course, Jill, not typically talking about football coaches on this pod, but uh, two coaches in two days, of course, the legendary coach, at Alabama, Nick Saban retired yesterday, and Bill Belichick, really synonymous with the Patriots, with his hoodie, with the cutoff sleeves. Uh, we've been watching him on the sideline for more than two decades, retiring as well this week. And finally, from CNN, another end of an era, this time for Fruit Stripe. The Bill Belichick <laughs> of gum. Yes. It is the decades-old gum brand that was known for its fruit-inspired flavors and zebra print product. The brand's owner is discontinuing the striped treat saying the decision to sunset this product was not taken lightly. We considered many factors before coming to the decision, including consumer preference and purchasing patterns and overall brand trends for Fruit Stripe gum, basically saying nobody was buying it anymore. Jill, let me tell you, I haven't bought it in decades. Well, mainly because I'm an adult now, but most significantly... Did any of those pieces of gum ever last you like more than 12 seconds? <laughs> no, but I feel like gum in general, particularly gum that's like sugar gum and not sugar-free gum, yeah. pretty much lasts 15 seconds and then it's done. I see. I feel like Fruit Stripe gum was the worst offender. Uh, sort of like, you know, I, I have issue with certain candies as we've discussed in this podcast. But in this case, Fruit Stripe gum, you know, you get it as a kid, you put it in your mouth. It tastes so good for like a hot second. And then, like, you can't even get a minute out of it. Anyway, <laughs> R.I.P. Fruit Stripe. They had the five flavors in the package, right? Orange, peach, cherry, melon, lemon. It also came with a temporary tattoo of the zebra mascot. By the way, the manufacturer of this makes uh, pixie sticks and nerds. Uh, I'm learning more about the candy industry through this story, Jill. But it's not off the shelves yet. Head to your local uh, 7-Eleven or grocery store. It might still be there. And it might last you. You'll get 10 more seconds of enjoyment per piece before it goes away forever. <laughs> okay, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for what we are watching, reading, and eating. Mosh, kick it off. Chill. Two words. Mean Girls. It's back. And in theaters. And uh, I've heard good things so far. So, Mosh, this is not a sequel, right? This is just kind of like a remake. Yes. That's my understanding. Which makes me feel extra old because to me, Mean Girls didn't come out that long ago. Jill, can you believe this? <laughs> it came out 20 years ago, 2004. I still don't feel like that's so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I get it. Like the kids are now the moms. I, I, I understand. I understand the way aging works. All right. Well, we'll let's, <laughs> let's both watch it and recap it on this pod. Jill, what are you watching? I'm going to try to watch Killers of the Flower Moon. It won a Golden Globe for actor Lily Gladstone. It's with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. It's going to be out on... Right, it's a Scorsese <clears throat> film, right? That's right. It's going to be out on Apple TV+. Plus this week and i am looking forward to it all right mosh what are you reading 
Joe, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have a premium pod with Farnoosh Tarabi. Her book, just finished it, Healthy State of Panic, about following your fears, embracing your fears uh, to success professionally and financially. Uh, and so we'll link to that in the show notes. What are you reading? So Mosh, my daughter is learning to read. She's in kindergarten. So I don't know if you and Alex are familiar yet with the children's book author, Mo Willems. He's amazing. Maybe you are. No. Because he doesn't really write board books, which is what you're probably reading right now to Olivia. He writes for a little bit older, like three to seven. We're at four months right now, actually four months today. I'm still like trying to get her to like, you know, look in the direction of the book. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So anyway, most parents are probably familiar with these books. They're incredible. Many of them follow Piggy and Gerald. They're two of these characters. And what we have been doing, because my daughter is now kind of learning to read with sight words and and also sounding things out. So she'll take Piggy and I'll be Gerald. And it's really exciting to to be able to read with her instead of just read to her and just see her sounding out words, remembering some of her sight words, and just kind of like understanding the flow of reading a word and, and who says what. So that is what we have been doing at bedtime. And it is a ton of fun. All right. What are you eating this weekend? All right, so it is a long weekend to mark the MLK holiday, and I've got some families staying over. I think we were going to make some s'mores for the kids and adults while we're at it. Delish. What about you? Jill, I haven't had Indian food in a long time. It's my wife, Alex's favorite food. Actually, she requested it as uh, she was in labor delivering um, Olivia. I was like, what do you want to be your first meal? And she was like, Indian food. She's obsessed with Indian food. I've never been, I definitely like it. I'm not as obsessed as my wife, but we had it this week. And the uh, butter chicken and sag paneer uh, really hit the spot. Well, I am totally with Alex. I am a huge fan of Indian food. Um, So enjoy. And everybody else, enjoy whatever it is that you are up to on this long weekend. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And give us a review, preferably a good one, in the App Store. Yeah, no, only review us in the App Store if you have good things to say Yeah, if us. you don't like but, this, just but, let but it go. But if you got to this point in the podcast, you like us. <laughs> at least enough to give us a review. Anyway, thank you guys. That matters. Uh, your support matters. We appreciate all of you. Stay warm out there in the Midwest. Drive safely. And uh, we'll see you back here on Iowa Caucus Day, Monday. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.